Chapter 18. The One to Blame. Mr. Cumberford locked the doors of the hangar and refused to admit anyone but his own daughter. Even Reed and Wilson, having assisted to drag the wreck to its shed, were ordered peremptorily to stay out. Wilson obeyed without protest, but Reed was angry and said it was his duty to put the aircraft into shape again. Cumberford listened to him quietly, listened to his declaration that he had nothing to do with the construction of the airplane, and therefore could in no way be held responsible for the accident. And after the man had had his say, his employer asked him to come to his hotel in the evening to consider what should be done. He also made an appointment with Wilson. Then he shut himself up in the hangar with Sybil. Orissa had gone with Steve in the ambulance to the hospital, where she remained by his side until the leg was set and the young man felt fairly comfortable. The injury was not very painful, but Steve was in a great deal of mental distress because his accident would prevent his taking part in the aviation meet. All their carefully made plans for the successful promotion of the Kane aircraft were rendered futile by this sudden reverse of fortune, and the youthful inventor constantly bewailed the fact that Burton would now have a clear field and his own career be ignominiously ended. Orissa had little to say in reply, for her own heart was aching, and she saw no way to comfort her brother. When he was settled in his little white room, with a skillful nurse in attendance, the girl went home to break the sad news to their blind mother. Meanwhile, Mr. Cumberford was busy at the hangar. In spite of his usual nonchalance and obtuse manner, both carefully assumed, the man had a thorough understanding of mechanics, and by this time he knew every detail of young Kane's aeroplane quite intimately. He was also shrewd and a logical reasoner, and well knew the accident had been due to some cause other than faulty parts or inherent weakness of the aircraft. So he took off his coat, rolled up his shirt sleeves, and began a careful examination of the wreck. It was Sybil, however, who stood staring at the aeroplane, always fascinating to her, who discovered the cause of Steve's catastrophe. See here, Daddy, she exclaimed. This guide wire has been cut halfway through in some way, and the others are broken entirely. Mr. Cumberford came to her side and inspected the guide wire. The girl was absolutely right. It was certainly odd that several strands of the slender but strong woven wire cable had been parted. Her father took a small magnifying glass from his pocket and examined the cut with care. It has been filed, he announced. Sybil nodded, but she seemed absent-minded and to have lost interest in the discovery. From the first, I suspected the guy wires, she said. When the aircraft collapsed, I knew the wires had parted. And then I thought of my clever uncle. Mr. Cumberford rolled down his sleeves and put on his coat. Three of the wires gave way, he observed. It's a wonder young Kane wasn't killed. Come on, Sybil, let's go back to the hotel. They found the field deserted, their motor car being the last on the grounds. During the ride into town, Sybil remarked, This affair will cause you serious loss, Daddy. Why? Steve can't exhibit his device at the meet, and Uncle Burton will be on hand to win all the laurels. Don't worry over that, he said grimly. We've got ten days in which to outwit Burton, and if I can't manage to do that, I deserve to lose my money. 
Wilson came to the hotel promptly at 8 o'clock for his interview with Mr. Cumberford, who said, Tell me what happened at the hangar after we left you and Reed there this morning. The man seemed reluctant at first, but finally decided to tell the truth. He appeared to be an honest young man, but he knew quite well that his testimony would injure his fellow assistant. It was quite early, sir, when an automobile came into the field and a gentleman asked to see the aircraft. Mr. Greed was at the door at the time, and I heard him reply that no one could be admitted. Then the gentleman said something to him in a low voice, and Reed, after a little hesitation, turned to me and told me to guard the door. I did that, and the two walked away together. I saw them in close conversation for a while, then Reed came back to the hangar and said, The gentleman is having trouble with his motor car. Wilson, could you take a look at his engine? You understand those sorts of things. Go and see if you can help him while I guard the door. I thought it was quite queer, sir, for Reed is as good a mechanic as I am. But I took a wrench and walked over to the automobile, which was not a hundred yards distant. A little dried-up chauffeur was in the driver's seat, and the gentleman asked me to test the engines, which I did, and I found there was nothing wrong with them. I hadn't been a bit suspicious until then, but then this set me to thinking, and I hurried back to the hangar. I hadn't been away for ten minutes, and I found Reed standing in the doorway smoking his pipe. Everything about the aircraft seemed to be perfectly fine, so I didn't say anything to Reed, except that his friend was a rigger and up to some sort of trick. He answered that the man was no friend of his, and that he had never seen him before, and was not likely to see him again. That's it, sir. I didn't leave the hangar again until Mr. Kane returned and took charge of it. Mr. Cumberford had listened intently. Do you know the name of the man with the automobile? No, sir. Describe him, please. Wilson then described Burton with fair accuracy. Thank you. You may go now. But I want you on hand tomorrow morning to assist in getting the machine back to Kane's old hangar. Very well, sir. Reed came a half an hour after Wilson had left. His attitude was swaggering and defiant. Mr. Cumberford said to him, Reed, your action in filing the guy wires is a crime that will be classed as attempted manslaughter. You are liable to imprisonment for life. The man grew pale, but recovered himself, replying, I didn't file the guy wires. You can't prove it. I'm going to try anyway, declared Cumberford. That is, unless you confess to the truth, in which case I'll prosecute Burton instead of you. Reed stared at him, but stubbornly made no reply. How much did he pay you for the work? Continued Cumberford. No answer. Cumberford touched a bell, and a detective entered. Officer, accuse this man of attempted murder of Stephen Kane. You overheard the recent interview in this room and understand the case perfectly, and the evidence on which I base my charge. You will arrest Mr. Reed, if you please. The officer took the man in charge. Reed was nervous and evidently terrified, but maintained a stubborn silence. Confession may save you suggested Cumberford, but Reed was pursuing some plan previously determined on and would not speak, so the officer led him away. The next morning, the wrecked airplane was transferred to the workshop in the Kane Garden, where Wilson, under the supervision of Orissa and Mr. Cumberford, began taking it apart that they might estimate the damage that it had sustained. Orissa's face bore a serious but determined expression, 
and she directed the work as intelligently as Steve could have done. Cumberford, who had bought a pair of overalls, worked beside Wilson, and in a few hours they were able to tell exactly what repairs were necessary. The motors are not much injured, announced Arissa, and that is indeed fortunate. We need one new propeller blade, five bows and struts for the lower plane, new wing ends, and guy wires, and almost a complete new running gear. It isn't so bad, sir. With the extra parts we have on hand, I believe the aircraft can be put in perfect condition before the meet. Excellent, exclaimed Cumberford. Then our greatest need is to secure a competent aviator. To operate Stephen's machine? Of course. He's out of commission, poor lad. The machine has to fly nonetheless. Orissa's blue eyes regarded him gravely. She had been considering this proposition ever since the accident. Our first task is to get my brother's invention thoroughly repaired. But the question of the aviator is fully as important, persisted her friend. Wilson, he said, turning to the mechanic, do you think you could operate the aircraft? Me, sir? replied the man with a startled look. I'm afraid not. I, I understand it, of course, but I have no experience. Well, of course, no one but Stephen Kane can claim to have any experience with this device, said Mr. Cumberford. So someone has to operate it who, as yet, is wholly inexperienced. Can't you find an aviator who has used other machines, sir? asked Wilson. The city's full of them right now. I'll try, was the answer. And Mr. Cumberford did try. After engaging another mechanic to assist Wilson, he interviewed every aviator he could find in Los Angeles. But all with the slightest experience in aerial navigation were engaged by the various airplane manufacturers to operate their own devices, or had foreign machines of their own which were entered for competition. He was referred to several ambitious, fearless men who would willingly undertake to fly the Kane invention, but he feared to trust them with so important a duty. Returning one day, in a rather discouraged mood to Orissa, who was busy directing her men, he said, I have always until now been able to find a man for any purpose I required, but the art of flying is in its infancy, and the few bold spirits who have entered the game are all tied up and unavailable. It looks very much as if we are going to have a winning airplane with no one to develop its possibilities. Orissa was tightening a turnbuckle. She looked up and said with a smile, the aviator is already provided for, sir. What? You found him? exclaimed Mr. Cumberford. I ought to have said aviatress, I suppose, laughed the girl. My daughter? No, nonsense. Oh, Sybil would undertake it if I let her, replied Arissa. But I dare not trust anyone but myself. There's too much at stake. You? Yes, Arissa Kane. I've been to the hospital this morning and talked with Steve, and he quite approved of my idea. Mr. Cumberford looked at the slight, delicate form with an expression of wonder. The girl seemed so dainty, so beautiful, so very feminine and youthful, that her suggestion to risk her life in the airship was positively absurd. You've got fine nerve, my lassie, he remarked with a sigh. And I've no doubt you would undertake the thing if I'd give my consent, but I can't do that. Why not? You're not fit. 
In what way? Uh, well, strength and, and experience. Girls don't fly, my dear. They simply encourage the men to risk their necks. Oh, foo. There's no danger, asserted Arissa scornfully. One is as safe in the cane aircraft as in a trundle bed. And yet Steve... Oh, one may be murdered in bed too, sir, you know, as well as in an airplane. Had those guy wires not been tampered with, an accident to my brother would have been impossible. Have you stopped to consider, sir, that even when the planes separated and crumbled under the air pressure, Steve's device asserted the ability to float and drop gently to the ground? Steve managed to get hurt because he fell under the weight of the motors. That was it. Really, sir, I can't imagine anything safer than the aircraft. As for brawn and muscle, you know very well that little strength is required in an aviator. Skill is what's called for, and a clear head and a quick eye, and I possess all those qualities. You think you can manage the thing? I know it, absolutely. I've talked it over with Steve in every detail from the beginning, and have personally tested all the working parts time and again, except in actual flight. But you're not afraid? Not in the least. You won't faint when you find yourself among the clouds. There isn't a faint in me, sir. Mr. Cumberford fell silent and solemn. He began to seriously consider the proposition. <laughs>